As we come here to Mark chapter 6, I would draw your attention to last week as we looked at Jesus' return to his hometown and the fact that as he returned there, he was not warmly received, but rather he was rejected. They questioned how it was that Jesus, this carpenter who had come from their small and insignificant town, could return once again to them and have this great authority and this great power as he was teaching. They just don't understand. How could he do this? Who is he? We know who his family is. We know his mother. We know his brothers and his sisters. How is it that he could teach with such authority? We find that when Jesus comes back to his hometown and he is met with this resistance that the things that had been common in his ministry, these great miracles that he had performed throughout his ministry, they, they seem to cease. He doesn't do many great works there, but rather he marvels at their disbelief. And so it's within that context that Mark gives us the account here of Jesus sending out his disciples. They have just witnessed his own rejection. They have witnessed also the great miracles that he has performed where he has been warmly received by so many. And so within that context, Mark tells us that Jesus sends out his disciples. He sends them out to continue the work that he is doing. He sends them out as preparation and foreshadowing for what is coming ahead. Because see, soon... He will be leaving them, and they will be responsible for carrying on the ministry on their own. And so this was preparation for that. They had seen what he had done, and now they were ready to go on their own and do likewise. As a matter of fact, in what we see here in verses 7 through 13, he is sending them out in a way that imitates many of the things that he has already done. Now, you and I should understand this morning that this does not mean that the things we see in verses 7 through 13 are normative for us, that they are going to be things that we are always going to be doing because he is sending out a very specific portion of his disciples. He is sending out this inner circle that he has called together known as the Twelve. However, the principles that we see here are very helpful for us because we too, if we are a part of the family of Christ, we have been called together and then called to be sent out to go into the world and do our ministry. And so very much like these 12 who have been called together and sent out in six different groups, two by two, we also have been called to go and to do the work of the ministry. And each one of us has a particular ministry that God has called us to. And the things that we see here in these verses help us to prepare and understand how we would go about performing our own ministry. And so as we begin in verse 7, we see that his disciples are sent Verse 7, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. Jesus is ministering throughout the, the countryside. He's ministering throughout the region. And so he calls together his particular group of twelve and he pairs them up 
and begins to send them out. It wasn't something that they did on their own. It wasn't something that they took the initiative to do. As a matter of fact, as we study the scriptures and we see the character of the disciples, we understand that it would be very unlikely that they would want to go out and do these things on their own. I mean, they just witnessed Jesus go to his hometown and be disrespected. He went to a place that that you would think at least on the surface, hey, this would be an easy place to preach, and yet he is rejected. They, they get to see that happen, and now he gathers them together and says, uh, by the way, I'm going to send you out to do some of the same things that I've been doing. They're sent. You and I should understand this morning that we are people who have been sent We have this misconception sometimes that that our primary function as Christians is to gather together. And there is no doubt as we read the scriptures that we are, as Christians, called to gather together. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews makes it very clear that you should not neglect gathering with other believers. This is something that is seen as wrong and sinful and unproductive and unfruitful in the Christian life. But, as we see here, a great deal of the Christian life is not about being gathered together, but about being sent. About Christ having gathered us together in preparation for us going out and doing the work of the ministry. Because, see, Jesus knew here, even as he's talking in Mark chapter 6, several chapters before we're even going to come to the last week of his life where he is, is arrested and tried and murdered before he raises again on the third day. He's still giving this notion to the disciples. He's implanting in their mind that that there is going to come a time where they are going to be sent out to do the work of the ministry and it will be their responsibility And now, 2,000 years later, we must not neglect to understand that we as Christians have been called to Christ to then be sent back out from Christ and do the work of the ministry that he has for us. Now, what's great for us, and something we don't read here that the disciples have, is that when Christ sends us out to do the work of the ministry, he has implanted in our heart his spirit to lead and guide and direct us. We shouldn't miss that. Because I'm afraid for too long in too many churches there has been this idea that the primary goal of being a church member and being a Christian is to be gathered together. But the fact of the matter is, we only gather a couple of times a week. We only have services or Bible studies on the calendar three times during our week. And yet there are so many more hours in our week where we are still called to live out what Christ has called us to. And so the disciples here are sent And we should understand that we are to be likewise. Now, secondly, we see here that he charges them in verses 8 and verse 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Now, we read that and we go, 
Okay, what does that have to do with our journey? Or are we called to then go and, and take nothing for our journey except a staff? What about a car? Our ministry may require a car. It seems silly. It seems irrelevant. You wouldn't think anything. Trust me, there are people that have read way too much into what this verse is saying. Some of us went just a couple weeks ago. We were on our journey, on our ministry journey. Trust me, we took more than a staff as we went into El Salvador. We would really like to have been able to take in small arms, but it's hard to get those things through when you go to the airport. We took the resources that we needed. I took my Bible. I took sermon notes. Unfortunately for me, both ended up getting lost in El Salvador and didn't come back. Maybe someone who reads English has them and can use them to some benefit. We don't want to overstate what this passage is saying when he, when he tells them what to take and what not to take because that is in the context of this particular journey that they are going on. But what does that say to us? He gives them instructions for the journey. He charged them, these are the things I want you to take, and these are the things not to take. He tells them don't to, not to take bread or a bag or money in their belts. They, they weren't to go and, and have everything they needed. They were going to go in dependence upon the people they were coming in contact with. And Jesus knew that this was going to give them advantages as they arrived, We'll see that when we come to some of the other points, how, how traveling with nothing would be beneficial to them and would allow them, by having nothing, to show their dependence upon God and point it, or at least point other people toward that dependence. But he charges them, he gives them instructions. I'm amazed at how often people think they're on a journey with God, and yet they refuse to listen to the instructions that he has given it's not as if everything in the world has been opened up to us as some form of ministry, but rather we have been given instructions about the journey that we have to come. He would tell his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 that he has this, this commission for them. And they were to go. They were to make disciples of all nations how far was the scope of their travels in Matthew 28? It's, it's not a narrow scope, it's a large scope. He says, guys, you're going to go change the world. But as you go, I don't want you to just travel around the world flying around and, and in their case, you know, walking around and, and riding on animals and traveling and seeing the world. He says, I've got some instructions as you go. You're going to go to the world, you're going to make disciples, you're going to baptize them, you're going to teach them, he says, to observe all that I've commanded you. In Matthew 28, he doesn't tell them, um, teach them the things you think are most important. Teach them enough to get them to come to church on Sunday. Teach them enough to let them know about Jesus, but don't, don't go deep with them where they really have to come in contact with their sinfulness and God's holiness. No, he says, teach them all that I have commanded. Everything. In this, in Mark chapter 6, he gives them specific instructions. He charges them for the journey, and he has done the same for us as believers. 
God has spoken to us and in doing so has given us a specific set of instructions that we should follow on our journey with Him. And one of the great tragedies in the church today is the number of people that believe they can be on a journey with God and yet completely reject His instructions. It's not possible. And if you don't like them, if you step back and think about not liking God's instructions, whose problem do you think that is? Do you think it's God's? Do you think God's going to wake up tomorrow and go, you know, John, he doesn't really like my instructions. Susie doesn't really like my instructions. I guess I need to change him. I'm sorry that I offended them, that I upset their way of life and their way of thinking. I, I'm, I'm sorry that I challenged them. Ah, they need to they don't need to do anything. I don't want to offend them. I, I'm going to go back and change my instructions. And we're all going to wake up tomorrow and magically the words in our Bible will have been changed because God decided he didn't want to offend anyone anymore. It's not really the way it works. How will we be on this journey that God has for us? How will we carry out our ministry? How will we follow after him if we do not understand that he has given us instructions for the journey. He tells us that we should love one another. That we should love him and we should treat others as the way, as the way we want to be treated. We should love others as Christ has loved us. It's pretty hard to be on the journey if you don't love people. But I've met a lot of people who, who occupied church pews who came to church every Sunday, who would, who would devoutly say that they were Christians and yet they could not love another person if their life depended on it. They would look around in church on Sunday and really there was nobody they liked. As a matter of fact, sadly, many of them had a spouse sitting beside them and they didn't really care for them that much either. How is it that we can be on a journey with God, that we can follow after Him if He has charged us to go to the nations and make disciples and to love everyone around us, to love our neighbor as ourself, and yet we refuse to do those things. We need to understand, God has called us, He has sent us, and in that sending, He has given us a charge. Thirdly, they're, they're sent, they're charged. Look in verse 10, they're told... Not to look to gain anything in the places that they go. They're told not to gain anything in the places that they go. And he said to them, verse 10, Where, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. It's kind of a strange part of the charge, isn't it? Strange bit of instructions. You go to these places that he has sent them. And when you arrive, if someone is, is nice enough and decent enough to welcome you into to their home, you're to stay there until you leave that place. For however long your ministry, and we don't know how long this, this uh, traveling, this journey for the disciples took, but however long you were in this particular place, this particular city, you were to stay in that city and stay in that particular home until you left the city completely. 
Now, why would they do that? See, there's a temptation to move up. There's a temptation to look for more. These people were going to have welcomed them into their homes, but there was still going to be that temptation to look for something better, to try to move up. Because, see, if their ministry was successful, man, when ministry is successful, everyone is patting you on the back. Everyone, they'll want you to come speak at conferences. They want to put your name on postcards. They want to give you awards. When ministry is being successful, everybody wants you to do something. It's amazing the number of pastors. They come to a church. They are there. They're, they're, they're working hard. Their people are working hard. God does something amazing. And all of a sudden, some big church wants them. As if that formula is going to transfer across state lines, across county lines. Well, that's the temptation here for the disciples. You come in and start preaching, and you start to be well-received. Hey, more important people might invite you into their house. The first place you get invited to is probably not going to be that nice. The first person you come in contact with is probably not going to be that important. But as you continue to do well in ministry, more and more people are going to want you. They're going to want you to come stay at their house. They're going to want you to come and be a part of what they're doing there. And Jesus says, don't do that. You can go visit them. You can go minister at their home. You can go minister at a nice place, but you're going to go back. And the whole time you're here, you're going to have humbled yourself to stay exactly where you started. You're not going to move up. You're not going to go anywhere nicer. Because it's tempting to do that. And see, what happens a lot of times in the temptation is we lose focus. We lose focus of the purpose that we're there. See, Jesus remains a person throughout his ministry that has no place to lay his head. He has no place to call his home. He remains humble. And he wants his disciples to understand he needs, they need to do that as well. Because unfortunately in ministry, what can happen is the people that try to pull you up and make you something better than what you are and bigger what you are and give you bigger things, they're also people that are often not that genuine in the faith. If they became popular preachers in their community, everyone would want to be around them. The religious leaders would want to be around them. Uh, The governmental leaders would want to be around them. But that doesn't mean that these are people of genuine faith. They were to stay with the people who they had started with. They were to be humble. And we need to understand that in ministry as well. No matter where God takes us and what he allows us to do in ministry, we are to remain humble. We are to remain an understanding that what we have is because God has provided. What did they enter those villages with? Remember, they do not take bread. They do not take a bag. They do not take money in their belts. If they receive anything, if they receive housing, if they receive something to eat, it's because God has impressed upon someone to be generous to them with it. And so they were to remain humble in everything that they received. Sometimes God has to humble us in our ministry. He has to humble us, remind us who's in control, remind us that we ultimately are nothing, that everything that we have is because he has given it to us. I was reminded of this on Friday. I had been working on a paper to present at 
at Liberty University, one of the largest Christian universities in the world, and I had been chosen to present a paper at their conference, and it's a, a, a honor, and uh, I was very excited about it. I put uh, hundreds of dollars into the resources that I purchased to write this paper. I put in dozens of hours and went there on Friday afternoon to, to present. I was getting to present with one of my professors who I had, um, who, who had been a mentor to me uh, in education, and I was presenting after him. Everything looked awesome. So the guy before me was presenting. Hope he doesn't listen to the sermon. To be honest, I knew my paper was going to be better. He's just a kid. And some of y'all think I'm a kid. He was really a kid. So I'm thinking, this is great. I got the last presenter's position. I'm going to blow it out of the park. It's going to be awesome. And the power went out to the whole university. 12, 13,000 students, the entire, the power goes out to the entire university. By the time I get up to present, power has not come back on. I have to go carry my own lectern from another class and stand under the emergency light with the five people that remained because the power was out and present my paper. It's a good way for God to keep you humble. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to have a, a crowd like this of, of scholars and professors and, and uh, masters and doctoral students, and I'm going to get to just lay out this, this in-depth understanding of this parable that I've been working on. And there were five people left because the power went out. And I stood under the emergency light to present my paper. You know, as I was driving home, I was so bummed. I called Rachel, and I, I was talking to my parents on the phone, and I was just, I was bummed out. And it finally dawned on me, you know, what I'd got to do in working on this research is good and helpful for me in understanding the things that Jesus taught. The five people that were there were very courteous and supportive and affirming. And that should be sufficient for me. And whatever we get to do in ministry, wherever God calls us as a church and as believers in Christ, has to be sufficient for us. Because it's exactly what God has given us. And it always bums me out to hear the number of students in seminary who could not be satisfied pastoring a church of 50 or 60 people in a rural area for most of their ministry. Because what they're going to find that's going to be depressing is most of them will do that for the bulk of their ministry. The average church size is 75 people. And yet many, at least in their youth, do not see a path where they could be satisfied in God calling them to minister day in and day out to 75 people. But if you can't be satisfied with that, then you can't do ministry. Because God does not want people 
who place demands on what must be achieved in their ministry. But rather, he wants people who will be humble in whatever he charges them with. So it may be that your ministry involves working with two or three people. Your ministry doesn't extend far outside working with your family or teaching snotty-nosed brats on Sunday mornings. Many of them mine. But if you can't be satisfied in that, how are you going to do ministry? Because if nobody will minister to the church of 75 people, if nobody will minister to the brats on Sunday morning or minister to four or five senior adults or minister to a small adult Bible study, then who will do that? Who will do that vital part of ministry? They were told here, when you go into a town, you are to stay wherever you go because those are the people who have shown you the hospitality and you are not to allow your ministry to keep you from being humble. They're not to gain anything wherever they travel. And ultimately, we should understand that in the end, we don't gain anything financially. We don't gain anything from ministry. Not anything that's of great value in this world. The fifth thing here, the fourth thing here, they're reminded in verse 11 that there are consequences for those who reject the gospel. They're reminded that there are consequences for those who reject the gospel. And they're reminded in two ways. They're reminded that they should show others that there's a consequence for rejecting the gospel. And then they are to be reminded themselves that there's a consequence for rejecting the gospel. He says in verse 11, And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now this is interesting because this comes from Jesus. There's a tradition that was practiced by the Jewish people since they understood that anyone outside of the Jewish faith to be unclean, any Gentile to be unclean, therefore any land outside the promised land was also unclean. And so when they would journey outside of the promised land and then make their way back, when they would come to the border with Israel, they would shake the dust off their feet because they did not want the dust from the Gentile unclean pagan regions coming back into Israel. The promised land was so holy that you didn't even want to bring back in the dust from somewhere else. And so Jesus uses this in talking about when they would go into a place and they would be rejected. Now remember, verses 1 through 6, he had just returned to his hometown and there he was rejected. And so he wants them to understand that you're going to go to some places where you're going to be rejected. And when you leave those places, if they have rejected you, you're going to knock the, dirt, the dust off your feet just as if you're leaving a place that was pagan, that was unclean. Because ultimately, if you have left there and the people there have not responded to your message then you've left them unclean. Now this is a 
It's one of those statements by Jesus that we often like to gloss over. He's, he's being negative. We don't like negative Jesus. Apparently, Jesus is supposed to always be positive. He can't ever be negative. But here, he is most definitely negative. He presents them with the reality that they are, go- they are going to be rejected. And when the gospel is rejected, there are consequences for that. And he wants the people who witness the disciples leaving, as they do this tradition, they carry on this tradition that everyone who saw it would be familiar with, they're, they're kicking the dust off their feet as they're leaving. But he also wants his disciples to remember that when the gospel is rejected, there are consequences, and therefore it should redouble their efforts to share the good news with those who they come in contact with. Because when they leave people who have heard the message of the gospel and rejected it, they are leaving people that are unclean. They are leaving people who now have heard the message of God clearly stated about Jesus And yet they've rejected it. And I don't know, because we don't have any more than this, I don't know what the numbers were from a percentage base on how many times did they have to knock the dust off their feet or how many times were they welcomed into a home. I don't know. I don't know what their success rate was. We think about the parable of the sower and there is the soil along the path, and those people just flat out reject the gospel. They're the people in the thorns and the people in the rocks, and they sort of accept but end up rejecting in the end. And then there's the good soil, and those people receive. And so we know there's some that are going to receive, and there's some that are going to reject. And the disciples are now prepared for both. They know both are going to happen. So what does that matter for you and I? Should when we go and and talk with someone, we're at work and we're sharing with someone about our faith and they say no, do we walk away from their cubicle and kind of, I don't know if you got a lot of dust in your cubicle to be knocking off your feet. It doesn't seem like that's applicable to us. But what is? Well, the truth of the matter is what we need to convey to people is the seriousness of our message. See, there was a a time in the history of the church where everything that was preached was basically about God's judgment. God's judgment was coming. It was coming soon. There were great revivals that were held in churches where the bulk of the people who came forward did so because they were scared. They were scared of this picture of hell and judgment that had been painted by the preacher. And from that, the pendulum swung to the other side, and there was this rejection of judgment. There was no talking about judgment. God is love, and God is apparently, you know, he's your, he's your friend and your buddy, and he's this cool guy. Where's the balance in that? Well, Jesus gives it here. They've, they've been told to, to proclaim this message. As a matter of fact, we'll see the, the message that they preach in just a second. But they were to be open and honest about the fact that there is judgment that comes because of the rejection of the good news of Christ. 
They weren't going to these people's faces and beating them with their Bibles until they would submit and come forward at an invitation, but they still were understanding of it that their purpose in preaching was to save people from judgment. God doesn't save people apart from the preaching of His Word, the proclamation of His Word. He doesn't just randomly go around and and point at someone and, and save them. But rather, people hear the Word of God proclaimed. They pick it up and read it and, and fall in love with it. And that is how people come to faith in Christ. But those who reject Christ have the judgment to look forward to. And so he wants his disciples to be keenly aware that the mission that they have been sent on is important because people are facing the judgment of God. If they weren't, If there was no judgment ahead, isn't all this pointless? You're all wasting your time this morning. If there's no judgment ahead, why did you come? Why be here? It's pretty pointless. The ball game started at 10 after 12. You could have been home and had chips and dip ready. You could have had your, your beverages out. You could have been ready to go much quicker than if you came here this morning. See, we understand that from God there comes this judgment for those who reject and this wonderful, blessed inheritance to those who receive the good news of Christ. And we, as we are carrying out our ministry as we're going on this journey with God, we need to be keenly aware of that. You notice here he doesn't talk to them about about heaven, about an inheritance. Those things are easy. It's easy to point someone toward that. It's easy to point someone toward heaven. People want to receive that. If you survey Americans, most believe that they're going to heaven, but they cannot tell you how they're going to get there. But he tells them to be aware of the judgment that's to come. It should concern them as they're preaching that people know. Finally, we got verses 12 and 13. In verse 12, they they preach this message. It says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. You know, that message has not changed. They go out and they tell people, you should turn from your sin and follow after God. We often make the gospel message way too complicated. We put all of these things in place that people have to do. They have to follow this checklist before they can get there. But the great news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that we need to turn from our sin and follow after Christ. They call on people to repent. It's important for us because we have, many of us, grown up in a time where we've been told by preachers and teachers that we should tell people to come to church. That the message of the gospel is to go out and proclaim to people that they should show up at First Baptist Church at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Now, if that's in your footnotes... Let me suggest that you change version of your Bible. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. 
Now, why is it that we often say we go out and tell people they should come to church? That's easy, right? Or easier. You know, if they got kids, you can say, well, we got a, we got a good children's ministry. Or they got teenagers, we've got a good youth ministry. Or if they like doing stuff, well, we like doing stuff. You know, we, I mean, we're a weird church. You know, we'll go out in the woods and shoot stuff. Some people like that. I mean, around here, that's, that's, that would be a good selling point. The Bible would say here, go out and tell people that your church likes to go into the woods and shoot stuff. Man, we would be set. We'd have to have five or six services on Sunday morning. But it doesn't say that. Now, should you not go and tell people or invite people to come to church? That's not what I said. Should we not go tell people, hey, our church likes to shoot stuff, and if you like to shoot stuff, you can come hang out with us and we'll go shoot stuff? Didn't say that either. But the disciples are told to go and to tell people, you need to turn from your sin and follow Christ. You need to repent. Turn from the sin that you're, you're in, the sin that consumes you, the sin that leads you, and turn to Christ. I want to promise you something. That is harder to do than saying, hey, here's a pamphlet about our church. Maybe you could come sometime and then run away. Or you know, leave it on their desk while they're at lunch and run away. But what people want to hear, not what they'll tell you they want to hear, but what people want to hear deep down, because it's the longing of every human heart that has fallen into sin, but yet still there's something that draws us, that there's something bigger than us, there's something greater than us that we were made. Even It's amazing, even the people that believe that we have evolved from a Big Bang and monkeys, they, they still want to find out what was there back in the beginning. They still want to know where, where did that come from. There's still that longing in them, even if they don't want to point that toward God. And you and I can come and say, I, I, know, I know what you're looking for. I know the one you're looking for. I know why there's that void because I had it as well. What God calls us to do is to turn from our sin and follow after him. Because see, people that have been trapped in sin for a long time, oh, they might live it up and, and, and all that, but when they get home, when they're in the room and it's dark and it's quiet, they're longing for something more. I know that because... When you watch the news, you constantly see those people who seem to have everything. They seem to have everything this world can offer. But their relationships are a mess. Their finances are a mess. And they take their own lives at an alarming rate. Because it doesn't satisfy. And the person that's going to be standing next to you at work tomorrow, they don't have a relationship with Christ let me promise you that their life, their life is very unfulfilling. They're very unsatisfied. Oh, they might greet you with a smile in the morning and they may be joking all through the day, but they are unsatisfied with their life. Because the only way we can live satisfied is in Christ. He calls them to repent. And then finally, verse 13 the disciples care for the people around them. They take care of people's temporal needs. 
And they cast out many demons, the Bible says, and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They're preaching this message of repentance, but they do not do so with a cold heart. They preach this message that that all people should repent, follow after Christ, but they do not do so with a cold heart. They have concern for the needs of the people around them. They have concern to, to cast out these demons. They have concern to heal these people who are sick. They care about these people's needs. Could someone be sick and still come to faith in Christ? Most definitely. I don't know how that works with demon possession. Would it remove it or whatever? I don't know. But the point is that they they didn't have to do these things. They could have preached this message and never taken care of one single person. But it would not have had the same effect. You and I should be very aware of that. It's easier to tell someone about Christ when they're not standing there hungry. It's easier to tell someone about Christ when they're not cold. It's just easier. It just opens up more doors for us. I know it's a hard thing to balance because I do it maybe more often than you with people who come by our church and they're looking for help and assistance and and we have to decide you as a church have set aside a certain amount of money for that. When do we help people? When do we not help people? How do, we, how do we make that judgment call? I know we do not get it right every single time because it's impossible to do. But yet, how much easier is it when we take care of someone's need? God has entrusted us with the resources to do it. We meet someone's need and then have the opportunity to proclaim to them the good news of the gospel. Sometimes Baptists get the bad rap, you know, of not really caring about people's needs. A lot of times I think that has to do with the fact that many Baptists are a part of a certain political party, and that's not really one of their things. But I'm not talking about the government helping people. I'm talking about the church helping people. I'm not talking about money coming from Washington or Raleigh. I'm talking about money coming from Hikers. I've seen what the government teaches people they help. It doesn't proclaim the gospel. It doesn't point people toward Christ. I want us to do it. We have got to be in charge of that. See, the government started helping people when the churches stopped helping people. And then people became dependent upon the government Instead of dependent upon the church. They didn't see the need for Christ anymore. They didn't see the love that Christians were pouring out. Because all they saw was coming coming from Raleigh. It was coming from Washington. And not from here. Not from the churches around us. Not from the family of faith. That had for centuries been where people went when they needed help. Centuries. We need to be... Aware of that. You know, we went, to, we went to El Salvador. We, our driver would not take money. Like, I'll take your money a lot easier than he would take your money. He just didn't want it. 
He didn't want to be that guy. He didn't want to be the, the guy who, when you know, the white missionaries came, he had his hand out the whole time. He didn't want to be that guy. And yet, when you look at a place like that, if you have the ability to take care of someone's hunger as you're telling them about the gospel, why would you not do so? See, what's, what's sad is that many of the mainline Protestant churches, have they've come up with this idea. Let's take care of everybody's needs and never tell them the gospel. See, to me, that's a sign of hate, not of love. Because if you feed someone and they never hear about the good news of Jesus, what difference does it make? What's it going to do for them? They're going to be hungry again tomorrow and still lost. But we have to make sure that we're not just sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel, and never showing what the gospel has done in our heart. That the gospel has changed us. That the resources that we have, we do not consider them our own, but we consider them Christ. And however he wants to use them, then, then may use them in that way. They take care of the temporal needs of the people. And it makes all the difference. People's lives are changed. Their demons are are cast out. They're healed. But also, these people get to hear a message of repentance. This is what we're called to do. As believers in Christ, we have been called to go out. We have been called to Christ to then be sent out by Christ. And as we go, we've been given this great mission to be on, these these instructions that Christ has given us. And we are to go with humility, understanding that we are not even worthy of this calling that Christ has called us on. We're not even worthy to be called to Him, much less be then sent out by Him. But as we go, we need to be mindful that we have a life-changing message. It really matters whether or not we take seriously this journey we've been on. It really matters because there are people out there who are dying each and every day, and the only thing they have to look forward to is the judgment of God. How sad it is that we have opportunities that we pass up. I know I do it. I imagine you do it. We give opportunities all the time and we pass them up to to implant in someone's mind the good news of Christ. We need to preach repentance and not just church attendance. Listen, I'm the preacher. I'm glad when people attend church. I've never met a pastor that was upset when people came to church. Now, I've known some pastors who had some particular people he wished would not come to church anymore. But I want you to come to church. I want you to invite people to church. Some of you are visiting this morning. We're glad that you're here at our church. We hope you come back to our church. But there are people who sit in church for years, for decades, but they never follow Christ. So what I want us to proclaim to people is Christ, that there's hope to be found in him. That regardless of what they're dealing with and their struggles and their heartache, all those things which are are real and they're heart-wrenching. But their only hope is in Him. 
is in Christ who died in their place so that they could have life. If we proclaim that, people's lives are going to be changed. Because getting them to church is no guarantee. We have people come in and out of here all the time. They come in and they'll, they'll sit in the pew, maybe for even uh, a week or two weeks or, or even a month sometimes. But, but if the gospel does not become real to them, if they do not understand it, if it does not change their life, then they're going to fall away. They're going to get choked out by, by the thorns and the weeds. They're going to, to not have those deep roots that the parable of the sower talks about. And, and they grow up quickly but wither. We want to implant in people the message of the gospel. Because that's what he's called us to. That's the good news that we have been sent. And we get to share the gospel. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We're thankful that you have called us together. You've called us together as a family of faith, but you've also sent us. You send us out even today as we prepare to end this service. You send us out into the world to do the work of the ministry, to to do the work you've called us to, to witness to people around us, to minister to them through through meeting their, their temporary needs and calling them to turn from their sin and follow after you. God, you've called each one of us to that who is a part of your family. And we just thank you that you think because of Christ we're worthy because we know that on our own we are not. But we know that through his love and death and resurrection. We have life. And because we have life, we are worthy to share it with others. God, help us to understand our mission, our ministry that we have. God, help us to be faithful to what you've called us to do. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for all that you've done, and I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd invite you to stand with me as we get ready to sing. If you're here this morning not a part of the family of faith, not, never having trusted in Christ, never having turned from your sin and followed after him, I would just call on you this morning to repent and believe. Say, God, I... I want to turn from this life that I'm following. I want to turn from these things that I'm doing, and I want to follow after you. If that's you this morning, I'd love to share with you how to have a relationship with Christ. Would you respond to God's word this morning as we sing?